FAQNYC, I'm Harry Siegel, recording in Midtown Manhattan with Professor Christina Greer in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello there. Hey. In a bit, listeners, you'll be hearing from Anthony Almagera, a lieutenant paramedic and vice president of the FDNY's EMS Officers Union, about his experience during the worst knock on wood of the COVID pandemic. A warning for listeners. That includes a conversation about suicide and suicidal thoughts. But first, let's take off a few highlights from another jam-packed week in New York City. Bill de Blasio is out of his run in New York's 10th Congressional District. Sharks are in. The waters outside the Rockaways, where the beaches were closed because of them. The feds say more monkeypox vaccines are coming. But so far, they haven't arrived in anything like sufficient numbers, as government at all levels seems to be, once again, a little overwhelmed or outpaced by events. Rain poured down earlier this week, didn't break up the heat for very long, but it did mean the pavement gave way in the Bronx, where this video of the earth literally swallowing up a van, and subway stations flooded like they now do every time there's heavy rain. And as we're recording this, New York One is reporting that the mayor is about to join the city council in using what remains of our federal COVID dollars to undo some of the money that schools with falling enrollments were going to lose in the budget that that same mayor and same city council just passed. But, Chrissy, let's start in New York 10, where the city's Greg Smith reports that de Blasio will probably be able to use all his new campaign cash from his short-lived run um, to pay off his old debts to the lawyers who represented him when he was investigated for pay-to-play schemes as mayor and to New York City taxpayers for the cops he took across the country during his ridiculous presidential run. Remember that? Despite being explicitly told by the city's conflict of interest board, he couldn't send that bill to taxpayers. So, Chrissy, with de Blasio out and leading candidates in the two polls we've seen, Carlina Rivera, Yuli Niu, and Dan Goldman, all in hot water for interviews they did over the last week with the local Jewish press for hedging on religious exemptions to anti-discrimination laws, Rivera, announcing her support for the BDS movement, Niu, and uh, hedging on abortion, Goldman. How are things shaping up in that race? And what other ones on the city around the city are on your radar right now as we're just weeks away from the start of early voting in the second primary of 2022. We'll see how many people, of course, turn out. Yeah, Harry. Well, I mean, as always, turnout, 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 right? When de Blasio decided to drop out, I actually, I didn't think he should have. He's got three and a half weeks left, and I know the polling looks abysmal. But I was thinking, you know, for folks in that district— and I could be wrong, but here, here's one angle, right? De Blasio is a name that a lot of people know. A lot of folks were able to benefit from universal pre-K. He got his start in that district. And so as we got closer to August 23rd, I thought that, you know, some of these candidates would start to cannibalize one another. We know that with this recent week with folks just, you know, BDS or abortion, I mean, the comments, you know, I think they'll they'll be able to bounce back. But- we're starting to see cracks in the foundation with some of these candidates who aren't, you know, as skilled as someone like de Blasio. So it's like, run through the finish line, dude. I think that he could convince folks. And when people are in that voting booth and it's a personal choice and they're looking at names, his is at the top, um, they're just like, well, I mean, he has kind of served. It's not that big of a deal. You know, Mondaire Jones, I think for some people feels like a carpetbagger. You know, Goldman feels like, who is this rich cat who's been on TV, but like, does he know anything about the district? Right. We've got Yulene, where it's just, I think we've seen cracks in the foundation, cracks in the foundation. Give it another three and a half weeks. I'm not sure if, you know, she can run through the tape. Carlina Rivera seemed like she's running hot, which is great. But we also know when, you know, when you're sort of emerging as, 
the the hot chick on the streets, like that's when folks start coming for you and they they start looking at your voting record, they start looking at, you know, past either comments or, you know, financial conversations that you've had with various people. We know that that was, you know, some attacks that people had on her when she was first running. So that kind of bodes a little bit well for someone as experienced as Bill de Blasio. So I was a little confused as to why he was dropping out. I felt like it was a little bit, yes, he's saying the voters have spoken, but I'm like, the voters actually haven't spoken. The polls spoke. Voters haven't said anything. So do you not believe in yourself or trust yourself to actually come across the finish line? Or were you just doing this as a boondoggle to get some money so you can pay back your debts and then you just played us all? Here we are. So, so Rivera is also taking heat as a front runner because she has all this institutional support. And this includes a lot of big real estate people in, in the city. And that can be hard to square. That comes with running ahead. But it can be hard to square with uh, with, with running as the, the progressive there. Do you think the Blasio dropping out helps Goldman potentially? I mean, not to be too glib, but they were the, uh, you know, everyone is trying to run into different progressive lands. And these are the two white guys with, mm-hmm. with resources in this race. And now one of them's gone. I definitely think that it, it helps Goldman. I mean, listen, let's be clear. Some people need slash want to vote for a white man, period. Right. And Goldman gives them that option. And he's not not smart. I mean, you know, he works in the SDNY, and he also has pocket change. And he, you know, he's obviously articulate. <laughs> you know, I love using that word on white folks. Um, but he is articulate. So in debates, you know, I'm sure he'll do well, even if he doesn't necessarily know the ins and outs of the district in, say, ways that elected officials do. Um, but I definitely think that not having de Blasio in does open up a lane for a different type of Democrat uh, that's not a super hardcore leftist like some of the candidates in the race. I mean, here's, you know, not to rag on Mondaire Jones, but the more I think about him being the district, it just infuriates me, actually, because it's not that he was drawn out of his district, right? Because we also know for Congress, you can still run even if you're not in the district. So my question for him is like, how can you say you're going to fight for the people in the 10th? You didn't even fight for your own seat. You just gave it to Sean. How do you know that he was going to win? Like, what deal was that? I don't understand the logic in this man saying, I'm going to come in your district and run. And you just say, okay, well, I'm going to pack up my suitcase and travel an hour and a half down and then run in some random open seat where everyone and their grandmother is running. Like, isn't this the district where you're from? Aren't these your people? So, and then you give an excuse like, oh, this is where Stonewall was. It's like, okay, that is important. Don't get me wrong. However, that's like me saying I'm going to run in the Rockways because like Frederick Douglass rolled through one time. Like, what is, I don't understand how you are coming to Brooklyn slash Manhattan from Westchester just because some other dude said he was going to run. How do we even know that Sean Patrick Maloney is going to win? Like, yes, he's got money, but like, that's Mondaire Jones's seat. So I'm just like, fight for your seat. I'd have much more respect for him if he just stayed there and lost and maybe ran again in two years and said, listen, I love this district. I'm going to fight for this district. I'm going to stay in this district. And Sean, if you want to come for me, I'll come for you back. But instead, Sean's like, I think I'm going to run. And then Bundy's like, okay, I'll leave. What? So as a voter, if I were in District 10, I'm not rolling with someone like that. I don't understand that logic. Because then it's like, so are you not going to fight for me when when you're my representative. So what in two years, if someone who has a little bit more money decides to run, like, let's just say Mondaire wins someone who has money and power decides to run again, then he's just going to pack up and leave me like as a resident of district 10. So I don't know how these, I think the debates are going to be interesting. Obviously going to be like 10 of us watching them. And I don't know if they'll make a dent or a difference at all, but I think that there's, depending on what the turnout is, I think that we're going to see some fascinating, because it's a winner take all, right? We we don't have to do runoffs. It's not, it's literally just first past the post. That's it. So that's why I'm just like, de Blasio, I don't understand with name recognition. I know the polling's terrible, but as we got closer to August 23rd, Harry, you and I have seen this all the time. Someone, he was in fifth place, July 31st, 2013. And we saw that he got 41% of the vote in September. So I don't understand. I know it's slightly different circumstances, but I just don't understand why de Blasio packed up his marbles so quickly. It, it seems like either he has a lack of confidence or this was just a sham in the first place and he was just doing it to raise money so he can pay off his other debts. And if it's the latter, then I'm really salty. I, I was pushing back on that idea. And now that he's called it a race, 
you know, I really do have to wonder about that. And if you look at his big donors, it's a lot of people who were involved in his pay to play shit Mm -hmm. as mayor. And so maybe they weren't even looking to have influence potentially with the junior Congress member. Uh, But this was just a way of squaring their accounts with this guy who they'd already put money into and had that paid off. It does have, to me at least, a little of that feel. Chrissy, speaking of of junior Congress members, maybe what happened to Roe changes this, but there's a good chance that what we're talking about here with all of these talented and ambitious politicians, would-be politicians like Goldman jumping into this race, is, you know, a junior member of the minority party. And so if you're a voter there, like, what should matter in terms of the fairly narrow, frankly, policy distinctions between these folks and what they'd actually be able to do in that position? Yeah, I mean, we know, first things first, junior members, unless they have decided you're a star, you're kind of on an island. Junior members in the majority party, though, do have a little bit of wiggle room in the sense that, you know, they're trying to get committee assignments and and trying to work on an agenda. There is a possibility that they could be a junior member in a minority, which means they don't really get anything done. Nothing. Except for you're fighting the tide, but the tide is moving on, right? I mean, you've got Joe Biden, God bless him. But if you're a minority member of the House in the next two years from 22 to 24, I don't see what you can get done. I mean, whether it's housing or climate change or abortion protections or whatever it may be. I mean, I think we might see if, if, if that is the case and the Democrats lose one of the houses, um, you know, either Joe Biden, you, you know, utilizes executive orders or we just see gridlock and deadlock and nothing, nothing happens. I mean, that's why I am interested to see what some of these debates yield because oftentimes when people are running for these offices they talk about issues where it's like that's not your job (laughs) like that's not what the role of a member of congress is going to do so i'm curious to see uh how they frame their various policy positions when they're all together uh obviously mondaire jones can say i'm a sitting congressman like here's what i've worked on here's what i'll continue carolina rivera can say well i voted on all these various things in city council and i can sort of expand them uh for a larger number of people I mean, I'm not sure what Goldman's argument will be. Uh, but don't forget, there's so many other people in this race too, Harry. And this is where we see these percentages can get real wonky because you've got, what, Joanne Simon? I mean, she's got her own squad of very participatory people. Uh, not saying that that's enough to put her over the top, but she's going to siphon off some votes from someone somewhere. This um, the math gets real funny with this many candidates and this funny. few voters. That Those are like the two perfect storms, right? This many candidates, so few voters, miscellaneous August, Tuesday, right? I'm not even going to be in town. I've got to vote early, like the first day, just to make sure I can participate, Same. right? I mean, because we all know the, the horrors of, of absentee voting in this city. So we've got a lot of New Yorkers who are trying to do that last push before the summer's over, before, you know, kids go back to school, camp is over, they're looking for something to do. So they're not in the city, uh, especially that district. So super low turnout, a gaggle of people running, varying levels of seriousness, but many of whom are also already elected officials, so they actually have some sort of base in that particular district or fundraising skills where they can translate that money into working for them. So shout out to Zellner Myrie and to the other state lawmakers who actually got us finally early voting, because otherwise we'd be talking about absentee ballots here for, for you and me not being mm-hmm. in town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully that's going to make some difference with participation. We're going to see. And then speaking of perfect storms, Chrissy, my closing question for you. Okay. The contractor cliche is you can have fast, cheap, good. You can pick any two. Like right now in New York City, it's 90 degrees every single day. And also 
we are not supposed to go in much of the ocean because sharks. Right. Sharks. I didn't, I said, I didn't have that on my pre-apocalyptic bingo. <laughs> so, so who's the politician who can solve New York sharks problem? Because mm. that's, who's going to get my vote. This is, this is where I wish Katie were here today. Cause she would know, you know, she'd be deep in the crates. Um, I don't know. I mean, Eric Adams, his response would be these sharks just need to get a job. Right. <laughs> um, Blasio would transcend the sharks historically. Right. And his wife would sort of have some sort of organization that she started to talk to the sharks later on. With a billion dollars. With a billion dollars. <laughs> Let's just let that sit there for a second. This city is wild. We really like zoom out. It's like this city is cuckoo bananas. Um, you know, I I really I do hope though, and you know, all jokes aside, I really do hope that the mayor and the city council can work with ecologists and marine biologists and folks who understand uh, climate change and, you know, patterns of our marine life and that whole world that we still have yet to fully discover. Because you know that so many families are so hot right now. Their apartments are literally unbearable. And so they are trying to go to the beach as as kind of like their third bedroom, right? Or their living room. Like the beach is is the only respite they have because the block is literally hot, you know? I mean, we've got brick buildings, so it feels like a pizza oven. So the beauty of New York is that we actually have so much coastline that I think various mayors over time have, have done a great job at, you know, making sure they, they get cleaner and safer. You know, obviously we're struggling with some lifeguard stuff this summer, but so many families rely on the beach as a good, cheap, slash free way to entertain uh, their loved ones in this unbearable heat. And the fact that they're like, well, you can come to the beach, but you can't go in the water. And it's like, well, I mean, who wants to do that? You're just sitting in this hot sand. <laughs> like That's called desert. That's not beach time. It turns, out, it turns out that if you want the water, what you can do is wait for the skies to open up and then go into the it's hardly even feels like a story anymore because it's every single time flooded, overrun subway stations. And this goes back right. to having leaders who can be disciplined enough mm-hmm. and serious enough and think long-term enough, which by the way also means figuring out your budget before you pass it, not taking it back right after, to start handling some of these problems that are building up and will hit New Yorkers who depend on the trains who have to go to work during a pandemic, you know, who need a place to go during the heat, inevitably is going to hit them the hardest. And Katie couldn't be here today, Wednesday. We'll have her back soon to talk sharks. Uh, She was uh, on this uh, part of this conversation yesterday, led this conversation with a paramedic, an old school Park Slope native, Anthony Almagera, about his pandemic experience um, at a time when paramedics were basically the only people who were going into anyone else's house during that scary first wave when everyone who could was isolated. And his new book, Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. Let's jump right in. Anthony Olmajera, a Park Slope native, has been a New York City medic for 18 years seen everything from hurricanes to swine flu. But there was nothing like the year 2020, that first COVID year, which he chronicles in his new book, Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic. Anthony's an EMS lieutenant and the vice president of Local 3621, which represents EMS officers. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's uh, wonderful to be here. So I guess before you talk about um, 2020, I guess to be fair, the book starts in the fall of 2019 leading up to it. But before you talk about it, can you briefly discuss your background and, and what made you want to become a paramedic, which you get into in the book, but just sort of your your path there? So I was born and raised in Brooklyn, Park Slope. Lived to other places in Brooklyn, but born and raised in Brooklyn. I started in EMS in 2002. I was working in a restaurant. And these EMTs used to come in all the time. And I'd listen to their stories. And I was studying to become an actor. So uh, I was doing small parts, little plays here and there. And as I would listen to them while they're waiting for their food, I thought, oh, that'll be the perfect job for an actor. You know, to, 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 to be able to go into people's homes and see how people live and, 
and the emotions that they talked about, you know, the, the crazy scenes that they'd be on. You know, as an actor, you try and imagine what somebody uh, suffering or somebody coming back to life or somebody, how, or how, how people live and the little quirks they have. But as an EMT, I don't have to imagine it. I see it. So I thought those two would marry well. And I asked somebody, how do you do it? And they told me about a school. And I went. And then, uh, you know, 20 years later, I act like I know what I'm doing in EMS now. <laughs> so I guess you don't do much other, uh, there's no like theater you're working on or anything. You could do a play no, based I, on the book, I guess. I could do a play. Yeah. So when this is finally made into a movie or TV show, <laughs> you know, I'll, maybe I'll do a Rocky thing where I'll play myself, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, speaking of the book, I, I know, and I note that it, it begins in the fall of 2019, but um, I guess I do, do want to jump right into 2020 and, and the start of it. And I, and I will say you talk a, a lot about the kind of camaraderie within your group home. You call your friends who you've met um, working as a paramedic and that kind of thing. We'll jump right kind of into COVID and the prologue, I think, really sets the tone for the rest of it. You go to Sheepshead Bay in March 2020. You find a woman who's dying of COVID. Her husband works as a medic in, in, in the medical industry. He had to go to work. And you know that, you know, you couldn't save her, which is sort of one of many people that you and your uh, colleagues couldn't save. And then what really hit home for me was that you couldn't even console this this husband, um, which you note later on was sort of one of the the one kind of human things you can do responding to, to these calls when someone unfortunately dies. So can you describe those early weeks? I guess even starting in February, you know, the the, the increase of these quote unquote fever cough calls is what you were calling COVID and that panic and the lack of support. So if you just want to talk uh, uh, as long as you want about what those early weeks and months were like. So um, in February, 2020, we had heard about the virus, obviously. Um, in January, I was in Australia, New Zealand on vacation. I was getting messages from friends saying, hey, there's a virus over there. It really made me realize how many people don't know geography. Uh, I was like, well, I'm in Australia, that's China. Uh, but so, you know, we, I had heard about it. And then when February came, you know, it started to, uh, we had a couple of calls in Seattle and, and people, I think the first uh, patient was in Westchester. So over here, I work in Brooklyn's Chinatown, which is now the largest Chinatown in New York city. And I started to give these roll calls where we inform members about things going on in the department and the city, you know. And say, hey, there's there's a virus. We have direct flights from China. Let's let's be a little more uh, cautious. With um, maybe some patients came over, you know, to visit family, and and they might be symptomatic. But the problem was we didn't know the symptoms. We didn't know what to look for, and the fire department really didn't start to inform anybody about anything. So there was no ramping up. As a matter of fact, it was a keep calm and carry on mentality. You know, de Blasio was telling mm -hmm. people, continue to go to the movies, go to the restaurants. You know, uh, I think it was March 12th or 13th, he had a news conference saying he's going out to dinner. Everybody should still continue as normal. And by March 17th, I started to see the calls. Um, my first patient that I recollect was a, a, an older gentleman in Sunset Park here who we just couldn't figure out what was going on. He had an SPO2 where, you know, the oxygen sensor that they put on your hand when you go to the hospital or a doctor, it was in the 70s. Yeah. Normal people, wow. if they're in the 70s, you're not talking to me for the most part. You're just struggling to breathe or you're passed out already. But he was talking and he was saying, you know, I just can't catch my breath for some reason. And by the time we got him into the ambulance, we intubated him. And by the time he went to the hospital, he was in cardiac arrest. And I was like, what, what was that? And, you know, and the doctor showed me the x-ray. And I, I'm sure your audience and you guys are familiar with what a lung looks like in an x-ray. It should be clear, right? You know, this yeah. looked like a, an exploded marshmallow. It was white. Wow. Um, it showed all the inflammation. And the doctor was like, this is COVID. I think this is COVID. And I went, oh, here we go. And then to the call you referenced in the throw, you know, March 19th, we went over 4,000 calls, uh, almost 5,000, I believe. 
And then March 20th, the bomb went off. And we were just like, what's going on? Normally, EMS does 3,500 to 4,000 calls a day. With some exceptions, a heat wave, you know, a Sandy. Yeah. Uh, we were doing 5,000, 6,000, 6,500. I believe the record was 7,243. 7,243 calls. And so I start responding to all of these calls in this part of Brooklyn. And we're getting sent all over. Units are coming from East New York. We're going into Staten Island. We're just so overwhelmed and inundated with calls. And I go to the medical call that you mentioned. We walk in. He, they both worked. One worked in the hospital. One worked in the nursing home. The wife worked in the nursing home. The wife did not feel well. She couldn't go to work. The husband stayed home with her for a couple of days. But the hospital said, hey, we all hands on deck. We need you. And the wife said, no, you got to go in. You know, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. This is what he kept relaying to us. And... He goes to work. He does the right thing. He's needed in Coney Island Hospital. And he comes home and his wife is dead. Calls 911. So I respond with the two medic, with the medic crew, the EMTs. We walk in. We're all gowned up. We're all masked up. And so that slows down the process, right? It's no more just running in. Now we have to, you know, and we see the guy at the door and he's waving us in. He's waving us in. And I'm like, oh, sir, okay, we're coming, we're coming. And we go in. It's a modest apartment, and the woman is on the floor. And I guess he had tried to do CPR. We start CPR. We, you know, people, I don't know if the audience understands, but we, when I say we bring the hospital to you, we do. We have all the same medications that you would get in a cardiac arrest in the hospital. We do it in your house. We intubated her. EKG was flatlined. I mean, we threw the kitchen sink at her. We couldn't get it back. He had, because of the, the dimensions of the apartment, he had waited outside. I walk out. There's a car in the driveway. He's leaning against the car. And there's a little grass between us. And I'm on the pathway out. And I kind of go towards him a little and I stop. I'm masked up. He's not. What he described as all the symptoms she was having sounds exactly like all the symptoms of COVID. He's in close proximity to all of a sudden it hits me that I I can't get that close. Normally what I do is what I like to call a grief transfer. You know, obviously we can't save everybody. And you go over and you put your arm around the person and you say, listen, I'll use you as an example, Katie. Listen, Katie, your mom, we did everything we could. You know, we gave these medications. We did this CPR. We tried to do this, but unfortunately, you know, the, the disease process was too long. She's been down too long. And uh, we couldn't get it back. And then I would put my arm around Katie. And I'd sit there and make you make eye contact with me and say, what, if, what can I do for you? Right? Because now my job is transitioning to comforting the living. You know? And yeah. I go, how can I help you? And even it's just that touch. And what that does for me as the provider is it allows me to feel human in a very stressful situation where I couldn't save somebody, so I can't get my, I can't feel complete that way. And I feel like I failed in my job. But now I feel like, okay, I can, I can regain some of that and, and say, okay, because I got to go out and hit the button and I'm going to get another call and I got to be there for that person. I got to try and, transition into another patient and I got to keep as much as my humanity as possible while providing care. But that guy was standing on the car and uh, I stopped and he, I stayed from a distance. I said, I'm sorry, sir. We couldn't do anything. And he collapses and he's hitting the car and screaming. Why did I go to work? Why did I go to work? And normally I'd be able to comfort him, but we all thought, you know, if she had it, he's sleeping next to her, he has it. And we don't, we can't get it. And I watched this guy crumble into the ground and now I had, I stayed at this distance. And, um, 
he kind of got a hold of himself a little, and I said, I'm sorry, sir, and, you know, at a, about 15 feet away, and the crews went back into the ambulance to take off all their stuff, and I went back into my truck, and it's the first time in my career that I cried. Um, I sat in the truck, and I cried, and I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't, uh, there was no way to go with that energy, and I knew we were going to be in for something here. Right, we were going to be in for it because if we're that worried and we can't do these grief transfers and we can't make contact and we have to go into these patients' homes almost as gowned and protected up as possible, there was no way we were going to keep up if this thing really spread. And and as everybody knows, it you know it was a wildfire that we just can't contain anymore. Yeah. So in that first wave in the wildfire, you write at one point, for months, nobody went into anyone else's home, no one but first responders. And then as as this is happening, there's just this accumulation. You don't have this all like in one list, but of details about how difficult the working conditions that that the city or the FDNY has set up for you guys are, that, that, that you've got. I think 12 sick days, right? And you can't necessarily take those even if you get COVID, that you're waiting in line like everyone else for PCR tests. Uh, There's basically no N95 masks and none of them coming. Like, I suppose y'all are the Calvary, but like there's no Calvary coming to assist you. The uh, the telemetry system collapses. You have bosses you like, you don't see, but they're just changing protocols all the time firefighters who also get some of the uh some of this training and a lot of the calls they respond to in fact are medical calls they get told not to respond they have unlimited sick leave by the way to any fever cough calls so that's all just on y'all they set up a 20 minute and then stop cpr rule so even if you think you can save somebody and that goes away after a while but it's like 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 we don't have the resources you, you just have to triage and let this person go i'm hoping you can talk for a bit about how difficult this was for, for, for you as a, as a lieutenant and for other EMS and paramedic officials and, and why the FDI, the, the fire department in the city made this uh, so tough a, as you're dealing with all that. So you said it, we're the cavalry, right? Coming to save everybody. But we didn't have any horses. You know, we're, we're charging in, just running on, on pure steam. and. And so for years, we've had training. You know, we've had two or three Ebola cases in the metropolitan area. One was in New Jersey. Yeah. And when that happens, the training we get for Ebola, we have to go, we get into these big suits, the Tyvek suits, the mask, the, the uh, you know, what, what I'll call a gas mask for the layperson is what we have, you know. And we sit there and put all that on, and it made me think, that, you know, there's some uh, warehouse someplace that is just ready. And so when this is coming and we see the call volume start to tick up, you know, we had a little supply of N95s. We don't use them on every call, tuberculosis patients, stuff like that. I'm thinking, okay, the cavalry's coming. You know, a couple of weeks in, we were told, that's it. You can only wear them on certain calls. And other calls, you're not going to wear them. And, you know, I was in a meeting because the president had gotten sick. And I was in this meeting with the chief of EMS and the chief medical officer. And they said, only these types of jobs, you're going to wear the mask, the other mask, the other jobs, you can't wear the mask. And I went, that's not happening. Then we're not going to call. Imagine I come into your home and you sprained your ankle, but grandma's over there hacking up a lung. You know, I don't know what's going on in your house. Yeah. So the fire department started running out of supplies. Uh, we started wearing the, the gowns that they were given went from the high quality ones to the ones that, you remember the lunch ladies used to wear in school, the <laughs> plastic, yeah. you know, they're made for somebody five feet. I'm six foot one. I put it on, it rips. We just stopped wearing them. We didn't have any place for the members to go. We had no dedicated testing. Still to this day, by the way, there's no dedicated testing for EMS members. Wow. 
they they came out with it when they wanted to do the vaccines and then it went away. So there's no dedicated testing. We're running short on supplies. There's no real game plan. The chiefs that were in charge went into the bunkers. We didn't see them. Firefighters stopped coming on calls, which they shouldn't be doing medical runs anyway, but that's a conversation for another day. But they stopped coming on calls. Uh, we started to get sick. Around the middle to end of March, a quarter of the EMS workforce, which is only about 4,000 months, was out sick with COVID. Oh. So now you're taking double the runs with a, th- with a quarter of the less people to respond to it. And we're running in full steam. And then every it felt like every day or every other day, a new order was coming out. We're going we're gonna to do this different. We're going to change this. But you couldn't keep up. Was, first of all, none of us were really getting back to the station to be able to disseminate that information. Second, a 20-minute window to work up somebody. So you hit the button to show that you're on scene. The clock starts. Yeah. It takes me a good five minutes to get all the equipment off and to make sure the scene is safe, right? I, I can't, think, I don't know, maybe when the cardiac arrest, but somebody stabs you. Yeah. EMS goes into those scenes all the time. As you've seen recently, we've been shot on, you know, uh, we've had two members shot. We've had things, you know. So it takes me a good at least five minutes to square that away. So now it's 15 minutes. Then it takes me another two, three, four minutes to set up the equipment so that I can start the IV and intubate and do everything else. So now you're really talking about 10 to 12 minutes I got to work on you. And then I'm pronouncing it. It's the, it's the total antithesis of what we do, right? I have to, I have, to have time to, to stretch out all the different diagnoses that are possible to try and reverse them. And in 12 minutes, you can't do that. But we didn't have anybody. You had EMTs going to cardiac arrest by themselves, transporting patients with one person in the back doing CPR alone, no intubation, not breathing for them because we didn't have any resources. And it wasn't until the beginning of April, I believe, where they started to call in ambulance units from the outside. But by that time, the, the, you know, the, the horse left the barn. You know, we were really cranking in the beginning of April. It really started to get bad. We were doing normally in a busy area, just to give you some context. If you're in a busy truck, maybe you do two or three cardiac arrests a week. The nursing home, somebody got hit by a car. You know, we were doing 10 a day on on an eight hour tour. Wow. I did, I did 13 cardiac arrests in 16 hours. I had crews coming back five, six, unheard of daily. This was happening. Do you know how many of those people made it out of those 16? Not many. Oh, and the six, out of my 13? Yeah. Nobody. So I, in the book, I talk about that day where the one, the one call I went on where I found relief was somebody who committed suicide. Imagine that I'm on that call, I'm with the crews, and it's the first one we go, Oh, uh, we don't have to get all masked up. We don't have to, you know, uh, be uh, hyper vigilant here. It's outside. Look at the ocean. You know, you look. I'm looking at the at Bay Ridge. You know, in Owlshead Park, you're overlooking the bay, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at it, going, "It looks normal." The suicide was the normal call. Everything else was, you know, went to pot. One, one, one other sort of related question here. You know, you describe in the book that like these protocols keep changing from these bosses who aren't really showing up, who are given like like lip service and taken off when they do. There's like a bunch of good New Yorkers who eventually are getting y'all like food and meals while you're working these exhausting shifts prior to which, you know, like feeding yourself is like one additional thing. But but early on, you describe uh, you describe. EMS as the uh, profit-making center of the FDNY and say this has been the case in a lot of cities. Uh, you call EMS workers like the poor cousins, like the base salary and the peak salaries are, are significantly lower. 
And you mentioned before all, all this drainage of personnel. And, and I think part of that is the one reason people join EMS is to become firefighters and the consequence put you up in that line, if I understand this right. And so consequently you have this constant experience drain that, uh, you know, the pandemic also adds to. So I'm, I'm hoping you could just talk a little about the relationship between y'all and, uh, and the FDNY and how that's worked and, and how, in your view, and also as a union leader there, it should work. It hasn't worked. The marriage between the FDNY and EMS needs to be annulled. It's a failed marriage. The, the idea of a medic firefighter in a Class A city, which is a million or more residents, is untenable. It's way too busy. It is way too arduous a task to have somebody do both. It doesn't work. We're not firefighters. That's why we don't cross-train. EMS is EMS and fire is fire. Uh, in 1996, you got to remember we merged with them because Giuliani wanted to privatize EMS. And mm -hmm. firefighters were getting the, the threats of firehouses closing, and they said, well, we'll take EMS with the pie-in-the-sky dream of, well, we'll do some EMS runs. It'll up our numbers. The firehouses will stay open. And then what happened in the mid-2000s was lawsuits were, were uh, happening against the, um, excuse me, uh, about equality, equality lawsuits, et cetera. And now they look at EMS as not only a way that they can get their sons through the back door into fire. It was all chief's kids and stuff like that. You know, because the little dirty secret is if you come through EMS and you take the exam, you can get an 80 and you'll be hired first over the person who took the open competitive exam who got 100. Oh, or sometimes they get like 120, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it goes even yeah, you more. Get yeah, you all the little extra bonus bits. But you'll still be hired first if you come to EMS. So what happened was they developed this test in the late 90s, early 2000s. And all you saw, just all the kids of them come through here, was why wait? And then the lawsuits against them, which some of you, I'm sure you're familiar with, the Vulcan Society lawsuit. Yeah. And then they looked at EMS as a different entity, the most diverse 911 work service. And we're getting lawsuits against diversity. We'll just pull from here. So you started to see women, uh, minorities, people of color, all started to migrate into fire. And they subjugated us in, in a way like I call it as a colonizer would. They saw a resource. They keep it fragmented in here. And we, it's hard to coalesce around a cause because people are coming on to leave. Right? Why would I risk my job or, or anything like that to make this place better and not go to the promised land? So you had all this, what a, this brain drain happening. And every time we go to the city to say, hey, we just want equality. We have an equality lawsuit. So we want equality. We're not asking for more than the other agencies. We're asking for the same. And they keep saying no. And the fire department keeps inhibiting that. Yeah. And so they, they don't help us. And EMS needs to be its own agency. Let me try it on my own. And uh, to, ment to bring up the other thing, um, you know, it's about $35,000 to pay gap in firefighter EMT. They don't give you a real choice. Firefighters get unlimited sick. Uh, we get 12 sick days. Imagine that during a pandemic, you get 12 sick days. Firefighters, if they die in the line of duty, their families get their pay and benefits for life. EMS members, the, the benefit package gets cut off within 24 hours, and you get three years' wow. pay. If it's deemed the line of duty death, which the members that have died from COVID and EMS, which are approximately 11, that is still yet to be determined. They get three years' salary. We're not even equal in death. If you tear your arm, as you did, for instance, but if you do that while you're around your home mm -hmm. and you, you've been putting patients in ambulances and, and up and down stairs and stretches and all this, but then you're doing the dishes and it happens, that would not necessarily be a line of work injury, right? Would Just not be a work injury. Yeah. I would not qualify for a line of duty injury, which in EMS, the line of duty injuries are up to 18 months. You can take the heel. 
after that, you're out of luck. Um, yeah, no, I would have to use my sick days. And after my sick days are done, once I'm 30 days off payroll, I lose my health insurance. That's it. Yeah, I don't, uh, uh, Katie, you've seen me on Twitter. I share GoFundMe's. To yeah. raise money for members because they're, you know, they're out of luck. They're out of time. They, you know, the bills. We started a help fund to try and solicit funds for members in times of need. It's been successful, but, you know, those things shouldn't exist. I would love it that they didn't need it. But uh, unfortunately, the pandemic has really exposed all the cracks in the 911 system, especially in EMS. And you say that too, there's a line in the book where you, at one point you think to yourself, you know, like when they were running out of the, the ALS teams and, and actually paramedics, you said, don't get sick New Yorkers because there's nobody here to save you. And I'm just going to say something and we can talk about it later, obviously. Monkeypox, don't get sick because there's still nobody here to save you. Yeah. Wow. It, since March of 2020, I was doing some rough math. I'm trying to get the actual hard data. We've hired about 1,200 people. We run down ambulances daily because we don't have staff. So it's not like we hired 1,200 to increase the Mm -hmm. headcount. We're we're treading water. So if this thing becomes something else, it's like we didn't learn a lesson, you know? We're going to rely on crews from the outside again. Wow. That's crazy. You don't see... uh, You don't see... um, for things that are happening in New York City, you don't see other police forces, right? You know, it has to be something major, right? You, you don't see other fire departments coming in. You didn't even see fire, other fire departments during 9-11. It's still way able to handle it. But for EMS, with our, our default is, let's hope the guy from North Dakota is available. Come on back, you know? It's not corn season. Come back. Yeah, I saw, you know, during COVID, I guess it was April 2020, in the parking lot of behind the Unisphere in Flushing Meadows Corona Park, it was, you know, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and, and you talk about it in the book, but, you know, you, you have a bunch of young kids who you said, 22-year-old from another state, they've never been to New York, they don't know the area, they don't know how to get around, and it doesn't, and it was very nice that they came, but what can they really do to take the load off an already overtaxed and overworked EMS and, and paramedic force. They're kind of just helping a little bit. You know, one kid you said was like, wow, I went to Times Square. It was crazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. Welcome to New York. He came in. He's like, oh, it was crazy. It was like that scene. He actually said it. I, I think I quoted him verbatim. Yeah. But he said, uh, it was like that scene in uh, the Will Smith movie where, you know, uh, there's nobody's like the zombies all took somebody. And it, and it was. And, and something that, Harry, you mentioned before, People were isolated. You know, if you had money, you were able to go and take your family with you, except the people in the nursing home. But that's another story, <laughs> too. But for most people, if you were isolated, the only people in time you saw somebody was us. And we walked in. It was like, what's going on in the outside world? And, and people, you know, is it still bad? Is it still this? Is it like they say on TV? And that's what spurred me to go out there and try and raise awareness. I heard Cuomo one day giving a speech about the, you know, he was doing those updates and he said, you know, it's a thousand people have died. I was like, no, it's 1400. You didn't include the 400 cardiac arrest pre-hospital, you know? And I, and, and, and then he was talking about the trials and tribulations of nurses and doctors. I was like, wait a minute, there's a quarter of us that are sick. And then we started to die. Right, we my old partner Greg Hodge died of COVID. We we started to lose people to COVID, and so I was like, wait. And I was relying. I was hoping the fire department and the EMS chiefs, the three chiefs in charge, would step up and say, wait a minute, no, 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 this is what's going on. This is the real deal, you know. But I guess they didn't get Wi-Fi in the bunker. <laughs> so, you know, I started talking with some of the other union people. I said, I, I'm going to get us out there somehow. And uh, and then I went, and I was told about all the cameras that were at Elmhurst because yeah. that was the epicenter at the time. And I just went, and I I went down the line. I said, "Hi, my name is Anthony. I'm from EMS. I have a story." And I just went, and all of a sudden, it just took off from there. If I could just ask briefly, and then I know Harry has a, a closer after that, but 
you know, how did that make you feel? You're on the front lines. And look, you know, Harry and I are reporters. So it was frustrating as a reporter to watch the mayor's office say one thing, then Cuomo said another, the bickering with the federal government, the lack of support, all that almost like, and you you do mention your um, participation in a panel about Oedipus the King and, and the parallels. Mm-hmm. But if you can talk about what it's like, you're going into people's homes, just surrounded by death and illness. And then, you know, here's the governor bickering with the mayor and, and fighting and not giving things and, and and all that kind of really immature behavior when we're really dealing, dealing with the plague. You had the federal government, which was, you know, it's not real. It's not real. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's real. You know, and and then then you're hearing this mixed message coming out from different states, and then within New York, yes, you're watching the mayor and the governor have this turf war over turf that's burning. You know, I don't understand how they couldn't see that. Uh, you know, it, it, it. My personal politics is I'm pretty liberal. I hate them both. They didn't represent anything for me or what I wanted to do. You know the. The, the concept that this is the time to get into a political fight. And it really, it was really jarring to me. And it led to my, it, it added to the things that I became very depressed about. Because I was really hoping it would be a moment we would come together. You know, hey, we're all in this. We all know somebody's getting sick. There's no place in the country to hide from it, really. You watch, it, it's on TV. You can't help but notice it. You can't help but see it. And I was thinking it would be like a World War II moment. Hey, we're all in this. Let's uh, let's buy junk bonds and <laughs> recycle and get everybody together. And it wasn't. And it started here where it started to fragment, you know. And you saw the, the mayor and the governor become fragmented even more. You saw the fire department become fragmented. But they told firefighters to stop responding. And you saw all other aspects of this society really crack. And, uh, you know, it just makes me think, it really made me think, what do we want as a, as a society? What do you, as humans, what do we want to be like? This? Every man for themselves? You know, where every person, if you have resources and means, you're good. And everybody else, uh, well, you know, better luck next time. You know, in the book, I talk about the guy who couldn't stay home, who was working in a supermarket because he didn't have sick days, obviously. And he comes home, he tells his mom he's not feeling well. Goes to sleep, doesn't wake up, 35 years old, got COVID. We start working on him, and his 60-year-old daughter is watching us do CPR on the guy. That guy couldn't stay home. That guy deserved to have clear communication. He deserved to have resources to protect himself. Okay, he's got to go to work. Some of us had to. He deserved to have access to testing and masks and other things. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. He was told, we're busy. People need their toilet paper. 74 rolls of it, apparently. And you have to go to work. And then he dies. I'm sure that that kid's life is forever changed. So is the mom and everybody else in that family. And when they grow up, they're going to look back on this and go, what was that for? And that's what really is disappointing. What do we go through this for? Even now, you see yesterday, they were, somebody was breaking down, or two days ago, somebody was protesting and taking the barriers and throwing them in the street about a, 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 child, uh, a child clinic that popped up to offer the vaccine for children. What, was, what are we doing here? And then now there's monkeypox. Jeez. And, and know, still COVID. What are we doing? Yeah, which you also point out. And yeah. There's still, so the calls, when it used to be an anomaly to go over 5,000 calls, you know, well, over 5,000 calls last night, the last call number that I, after, uh, around 10 o'clock was 4,700. You know, we're a, a big chunk of that is still COVID call. Thankfully, the only, for the most part, the only real serious COVID patients we have are unvaccinated for the most part, but they're still calling. And then you have the uh, chaos of, the city that's happening, you know, uh, crime is up and this is up and, you know, all that other stuff that we still responded to, you know, people were still having heart attacks during COVID, you know, people were still having strokes during COVID, 
uh, getting shot and stabbed. So I'm sitting here trying to work up, you know, work you up, and then I couldn't get you back, and then I go out, and then, you know, what happened? Somebody was a subway shooting, and, and you know, 10 people shot in the subway? Oh, let's go to that, and then come back from that. And the thing that's troubling, and I know there's going to be more, and I said it then, and I'm still saying it, we've had eight suicides in FDNY EMS since March, since February of 2020, you've had eight suicides. Right. Um, uh, we've had, I've had other people attempt, including myself, including myself. Yeah. Anthony Almasher, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Riding the Lightning, a year in the life of a New York City paramedic, plague year in the midst of this pandemic. And each chapter is a month from October 2019 to September 2020. And then there's an epilogue that goes forward in time. We're in February of 2021. We're past, knock on wood, the worst of this in some ways. You've taken up painting. I'd love to see some of your paintings. And the book ends with uh, you considering suicide. So I'm hoping you can talk for a minute about that about why you did not and what lessons you've taken from that part and this whole experience. And as somebody who's seen an awful lot of suicides, which most New Yorkers have not, and death. I had, I had finally had the surgery on my arm. I was sitting home and I, I thought it'd be time to recoup. But the country was still in total disarray. The department was beaten up and broken, and people were leaving now. You know, people, the people who could retire were retiring. We had mass, we had people resigning all the time. Like I mentioned earlier, 1,200 people we hired. Um, and I, I really started to see no hope. I was exceptionally lonely in that time. And um, I really just thought, why bother? Why are we all here? What am I doing? Nobody's listening. Nobody's hearing me or nobody's hearing us. And, uh, you know, I started to spiral down mentally. And, and I, I just had this moment where, you know, I've seen people commit suicide. It almost feels like, uh, you know, I, I've read the notes they've left and I've seen how they've done it. Um, in the book, I talk about one guy whose wife had passed away. And he had, he's like, I don't want to live without her. And that kind of made sense to me. You know, he was 80. He's in, he, I think he was in his late 70s, early 80s. You know, that made, he's like, oh, no. And so he acted, and I just thought, time to acquiesce. You know, life has got me in its jaws. And I struggled, I fought, I did the best I could. And um, I decided to, to, to end it. I sat in the tub. And it's funny because of all the times I've seen people die of suicides, I wanted to make it as dignified as possible. You know, for some reason, um, people, when they die, they're naked. I don't know. So I said, I'm going to leave my underwear on so nobody has to see me that way. <laughs> and uh, and I, uh, I made sure it was in a tub so that people wouldn't have to clean up a mess. And I sat there and I took my, this knife I had and I left it on the, on the, on the edge of the tub. And I started, I just put my head back and I, I made sure to remember that I knew how to cut the artery. And what happened at that time as I was sitting there, I started to think about the people in my life. And you mentioned it, the group home. Thing. Yeah. But I started to think about, wait a minute. I'm not as alone as I think I am. Yeah. There are people that, are, that love me. There are people that I can't do this to them. I can't leave them with this many questions and this much pain. Like I've seen others get left. There's still a fight in me. And, and even if that's fight with, even if that fight is within me, as I struggle with my emotions and, and, and everything else, that, that's a fight I have to have. Before I do this, let me at least really go down all those paths. And I started to remember all the people in my life 
And then, and then I looked up and I said, you know what? No, this is, this, this can't be done. There's another way. This group home, this comes up in the book for, for listeners. This is people you serve with as first responders, largely a lot of you have had your own difficult childhoods and lives. These are people you've traveled the world with and potentially if you'd gone through with this some of these might have been the responders who would have would have come i think possible yes it's it's the thought of as the vice president somebody who came would have definitely known me it wasn't like you know they were going to come in and be like i don't know who this guy is but yes it's quite possible because some of them work in the areas where i live that they would have they would have gotten to me and found me and, and and that that's another, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't think about that at the time of being discovered by somebody I know. And, and, and afterwards is when I thought about, uh, oh man, imagine if I went through with this and Angie walked in on me, you know, in the book, I talk about my little sister, Angie, you know, or, or talk about Mike, or imagine if they walked in on me and discovered me in this while in the role of being medic, you know? But I get it, I, you know, the, the, that feeling of um, of total despair and hopelessness. It really is a it really is a place to just kind of get lost in, and you know, you feel so much self pity in that moment, and you just go. I don't want to feel this anymore. I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of a world where somehow either I did it to myself or the world has done it to me, and this is okay. Not okay. But you know, I had to remember the love, and there is love, and there is connection, and those are things worth fighting for, and um, that was able to pull me through. And so, to this day, you know, I, I've done numerous things to advocate for mental health support for EMS workers. Unfortunately, the fire department entity is called the Counseling Service Unit is inadequate, wholly inadequate. It was set up for firefighters after 9-11. It was never meant to handle the workload that we presented in EMS. Um, the fire department has not allocated any more resources to it. Uh, so we have to go, we were able to set up a couple of things through the help fund on the outside of EMS. And people are hesitant. You know, one of the things that's spiked, as, as you guys may know, is, uh, is substance abuse problems during this time. Yeah. So just to let you know, uh, if, if a firefighter goes to the department and says, hey, I'm struggling with X, they send them to what we call the farm. It's a it's a rehab. Yeah. EMS workers are hesitant to do that because the firefighter gets to go there while being paid. And the EMS worker is now burning through their time if they have any or is off payroll. Because the firefighters have unlimited sick leave, like like sanitation Correct. and police and corrections, and y'all do not. And we do not. So even if somebody wants help and they're a little more nervous to go to a department entity to get help because save that therapist and the counseling service unit says you can't work, you know, and then that's it. You know, people have families to feed. And so, and, and, and the biggest struggle as far as from a union perspective, if I was sitting in front of the city and I was saying, listen, you know, we need yearly trips to Fiji and none of us can drive in anything less than a Mercedes. I, I, I'd understand if the city was looking at us like, these union guys are crazy. I'm just asking for the same. I am not asking for a dollar more or a benefit more than what the other 911 providers have. And for 4,000 people, that shouldn't be an outrageous lift. That should be something like, hey, I can run on this. I can make this happen. And to the public, 
what are you gonna what are they gonna say? You know, you're gonna say, I'm just giving them exactly what they have. So this yeah. way they can stay and be supported. Right? Medicine is like wine. It gets better with age. But right now, 72% of the workforce has less than five years experience. And I'm put I'm still putting kids with kids out there. And I say that metaphorically, but also physically. I have today I have a 22 year old yeah. and a 23 year old working out there. What am I going to do, right? That's all I have. And those kids will sit there with each other. And when they're feeling bad, there's no old timer to say, oh, no, listen, I'll, I'll help carry you through this. But this is how we do this. And it's normal to feel sad after calls. And if you have suicidal thoughts like I had or I know somebody who had, this is what you do. This is how we cope with this. There's, I don't have that out here. And that's why when I said there'll be more, there will be more. You know, there will be more. It doesn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way with COVID. It doesn't have to be this way in the city. It definitely doesn't have to be this way in the U.S. Anthony, we so appreciate you, I mean, sharing your story with us, writing the book so more people can read and, and hopefully understand just, you know, what you and your colleagues go through every day, um, even without a, a pandemic. Yeah. So we appreciate you coming on and we encourage everyone riding the lightning a year in the life of a New York city paramedic, Anthony Olmajera. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a proud member of the brick house cooperative of independent journalists, artists, and critics online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Anthony Almogera, for joining us this week. Adam Kamara mixed and edited this week's episode, and the song at the start of it is Heat Wave by the band Dead Heart Bloom. Thanks for listening. Be kind, be safe, be cool in this heat, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>